The bizarre stalemate in Congress is probably bad politically, but it might be even worse for the government itself. It increases the possibility that the continuing resolution, set to expire November 17th, only postponed a government shutdown. For what this all looks like from inside and under the dome, we turn to WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And Mitchell, we should point out that you have been putting in really long hours as a congressional reporter. It is just chaotic. I mean, how would you describe it up there? It is chaotic. And I know people have been using the term Capitol Hill chaos, but it really is. I can never remember any time like this where everybody is just pointing fingers at each other. People within the Republican Party are super mad at each other. There was a conversation I had recently with a Capitol Police officer as I was coming in, and she said a staffer turned to her and said, can we just have a day where we don't make history? (laughs) (laughs) Like normal people. Right. So, you know, this really is an unprecedented time. Obviously, there had never been a motion to vacate that was successfully carried out. And the fact that the House is literally paralyzed right now is really remarkable when you think about the fact that just early last week, House Republicans were starting to hopefully grind away on some of these appropriations bills. They were doing something as simple as addressing the energy and water development bill that was going to come up. And then all of a sudden, everything just exploded. And because of the rules, of course, with the House, you cannot actually legislate at all until you have a leader. So while we were having all these preparations potentially for a government shutdown recently, including some of the Senate and House committees canceling hearings because they were worried that the government was going to be shut down. Well, effectively, part of the government, at least on this side of the Capitol, was shut down because uh, they couldn't decide on who would be the next House Speaker. What was it that uh, Senator Robert Byrd once said, the House doesn't matter, but, you know, maybe it does. (laughs) We (laughs) do have two chambers. Right. You often will talk to senators and there will be a little bit of eye rolling kind of at this group on the uh, House side, of course. The discussion always goes back to the days when, whether it's apocryphal or not, that President George Washington and and Thomas Jefferson were discussing the fact that pouring a little bit of hot tea into the saucer, and and they were like, what are you doing? And, well, actually, I pour the hot tea on the saucer to let it cool, and the Senate is supposed to let things cool. But when you don't have any legislation actually moving over to the Senate, the Senate is kind of stalled, too. They're just doing their usual thing with nominations and, and going through floor speeches. So it's really an odd time here in the Capitol where we're just kind of frozen in time, if you will, until House Republicans actually decide on what they're going to do this week. Yeah, it's looking more and more like the House of Commons, sounding like the House of Commons with the House of Lords. You know, there's where you get the tea poured. Now, the Republicans are going to meet today. Is there any prospect that they will get organized and find a speaker? Well, it's interesting. So last week, a lot of things started to come together. Of course, you have Jim Jordan, the Ohio congressman who's the head of the Judiciary Committee, going up against Steve Scalise, the House Majority Leader. And it sounds like what they're going to do is try to initially get a little bit of coalescence around who is likely to get the most votes over this next day or two with these closed-door meetings. And then the hope is that they will, by Wednesday, actually have some type of internal vote. But of course, all of this is subject to all kinds of things within the Republican conference. And there's really no guarantee exactly when a vote will begin on a House speaker actually on the House floor. 
before. A lot of people initially assumed that would take place on Wednesday, that, you know, that would be possible, but that would be sort of the best case scenario for the GOP right now. It could be later in the week. And then, of course, we just don't know how many votes it's going to take. Both candidates, Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise, have a pretty significant number of supporters, you know, around 100 or so. But of course, you need 218 to actually get elected. So we're going to have to see, are we going to return to January where we had 15 votes before Kevin McCarthy was ultimately elected? And then within the conference, they're still debating whether or not they should change the rules so that a single lawmaker can't necessarily, as Matt Gates of Florida did, make the motion to vacate and then essentially boot the uh, Speaker of the House out of his position. Yeah, that wrecker of happy homes. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, WTOP's Capitol Hill correspondent. Meanwhile, the prospect of the shutdown, which was narrowly averted, still killed some committee meeting momentum. And they've got to kind of reorganize to get the machinery for everything else that would happen normally had there not been a shutdown or had they not figured there'd be a shutdown. Right. And you figure we're we're really careening from crisis to crisis right now because it just seems like we barely got through that moment where they passed the short-term spending plan and we got some time bought until November 17th, as you pointed out. But now that's only just over a month away. And I think, if anything, the chances of another shutdown I believe, are actually increasing at this point because there's no guarantee that the Republican Party at this point can really get together. And they're talking a lot about trying to cross with conservatives and moderates and other parts of the party, but there is still that hardline group that hasn't really changed. And so when push comes to shove, I think we're going to have another major showdown in November, and we'll have to see what happens after that because obviously there hasn't been a lot of progress, as I mentioned, related to the appropriations bill. They certainly are not going to be able to mow those down and get 12 appropriations bills ready in time. So I think we're just going to have another huge clash here on Capitol Hill. Lots of rocky roads ahead. And it keeps getting called a Republican meltdown. But if you look at the mechanics, they have a four-seat majority. But eight of the seats voted with the rest of the Democrats, which gave the Democrats the four-seat majority. And that's what happened with the vote. So really, the Democrats are kind of getting off scot-free, but four of them could have voted for McCarthy. Absolutely. And there was a lot of talk, as you know, in the weeks ahead before the potential shutdown earlier about whether or not there would be some kind of crossing of the aisles and some of the more moderate Democrats would go along with the Republicans and try to save Kevin McCarthy. But it quickly became clear in the hours running up to that infamous vote that the Democrats were not going to do that. Now, of course, the Republicans point a finger at the Democrats and say, look, if you really wanted to save the institution of the U.S. House, you would have taken some some kind of action along those lines. And of course, both parties are always partisan, but it is interesting to see this back and forth and the fact that although there are groups like the problem solvers and other more centrist groups, they've really been kind of pushed aside, even though they tried to make some of these moves, as you mentioned, they really have less power in some respects than they used to have. And it's really amazing how as few as eight members of Congress can wield this much power. All right. We have discussed the prospect for a budget being established even by that deadline, and that's not looking very good. 
anything else that's going on. I mean, there's a federal pay raise that is a part of the discussion here, right? a military pay raise and, and so on. Yeah. So all of those issues that were brought up during the debate prior to the potential shutdown are still there. You know, the fact that the pay raise is there, as you mentioned, the fact that Kevin McCarthy himself said one of the reasons that he decided to do what he did with that short-term measure was because of the military and concerns about military personnel not getting paid. None of those issues have gone away. And And so we're going to be right back to square one, I think. And then, as you well know, this whole appropriations process is just really broken. The Republicans have tried to get back to regular order, but really they tried to get back to regular order in about a week, as opposed to taking six weeks off during the summer. So that was clearly not going to happen. And then, you know, you look historically, Congress has not passed 12 appropriations bills since 1996. And in fact, Congress, since we've gone to the more modern age, if you will, under the 1974 Congressional Budget Act, there's only been four times that they've done this on time. And that goes, again, all the way back to the mid-90s. So something has to change. I don't know exactly what. Some people have floated the idea of going to an appropriations year that actually matches the calendar year, that you don't always hit up on this October 1st date and then get into these arguments over continuing resolutions. But there is no doubt, and lawmakers will say this themselves, that the real appropriations program here is busted. Wow. And just a quick couple of questions with international implications. One is the Ukraine question then becomes totally up in the air because there was no, even in the CR, there was nothing for Ukraine. And the Pentagon has a few months of dollars left to keep supplying Ukraine. And then the border, (laughs) there's money for a wall that bizarrely now will be built by the Biden administration. These are also deeply unresolved issues. Absolutely. And they are only going to get more intensified as we move ahead. You take Ukraine, for example. We knew that Ukrainian aid support was probably going to start weakening over a period of time, but it's really accelerated quite a bit now, especially in connection with everything that's happening, as we've just talked about with the House GOP. You have a, a House Speaker candidate in Jim Jordan who has made it very clear he does not want more aid for Ukraine. There's already a lot of nervousness on the Senate side, particularly particularly about whether or not this supplemental that the White House has asked for of $24 billion, is that now in danger? And even though the majority of lawmakers, I think, in the House and Senate actually support more aid for Ukraine, again, because you have this vocal group and a lot of people pushing back against it, that is going to be a huge fight. And then you had this major reversal in connection with the southern border by the White House this past week. Uh, A lot of people on the Republican side are saying, we told you so. And the White House trying to explain it uh, has had a little bit of difficulty doing that. But there is no doubt that is going to be a huge issue because it's already one of the top priorities of the House Speaker's race, that the top candidates, whoever comes out on top on this, is going to be making sure that there is more resources, that more attention to the southern border. And you're already seeing reaction now from the White House, many Republicans saying, finally, And some of them saying part of this is because so many migrants have been set to urban areas across the country in major cities and blue areas of the country are now really struggling with this. And of course, how all of this affects Israel and the House's response there will leave to another day. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. As always, thanks so much and stay safe up there in case they start throwing things. (laughs) All right. Thank you very much. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. 
So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to 
very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because 
first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.